This morning, I would like to talk to you about something that I'm sure you are, uh, you have heard of and are aware of. It's called the green-eyed monster. Right, you're all familiar with that, aren't you? Um, that phrase, by the way, and others similar to it, was actually coined by none other than William Shakespeare. In, uh, in, in his uh, The Merchant of Venice that he wrote in 1596, Portia, the story's heroine, says this, How all the other passions fleet to air, as doubtful thoughts and rash embrace despair, and shuddering fear and green-eyed jealousy. That was, as far as I am aware, as far as I could discover, the first instance of this kind of expression in the English language. And just a few years later, uh, just after the year 1600, Othello, uh, Shakespeare wrote the play Othello, and we hear there Iago, the antagonist, speaking. And he says, Oh, beware, my lord of jealousy. It is the green-eyed monster which doth mock the meat it feeds on. Now, we should not confuse Shakespeare with the Bible, uh, and I would not do that. But there is some wisdom in his characterization of jealousy here. He classifies jealousy as a powerful passion along the lines of doubt, despair, and fear. And he warns that jealousy or envy is a monster which both mocks and feeds on its prey. These observations are actually pretty close in some ways to what the Bible has to say about sinful jealousy. Now in the book, uh, Respectable Sins, Jerry Bridges offers a definition of jealousy. He says that jealousy is usually defined as intolerance of rivalry. Now this isn't necessarily a bad thing. And a classic example would be a wife ought to become jealous when another woman gets too close to her husband and, 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 and is uh, attempting to steal away his affections. A husband or wife should not tolerate any rival when it comes to their spouse's heart. That's not sinful jealousy. That is jealousy in its proper context. But Bridges goes on to define sinful jealousy this way. He says, sinful jealousy occurs when we are afraid someone is going to become equal to or even superior to us. This is very closely related to the idea of envy, which Bridges defines as the painful and oftentimes resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by someone else. Now, another sin that's in a, in a, in a similar category Uh, to the sins of jealousy and envy is the spirit of competitiveness, which is the urge to always win or to be the top person in whatever our field of endeavor is. Now, for some of you today, you may surprise you a little bit. You say, wait a second, Pastor, are you talking about the sin of competitiveness? Isn't competition healthy? Isn't it a good thing? Don't we all love a good competition? I mean, whether it's, you know, Packers versus Vikings or the home cooks on the great British baking show, or whatever kind of competition it is we're watching, we want to see who's going to come out on top. I don't disagree that competition can be a good thing. But what I'm talking about here is a spirit of competitiveness where we, we have this urge to always win. And that kind of spirit oftentimes leads us to do whatever it takes 
to be first. And that's a problem. Even more, there, there, there's an even more subtle sin in this category that I want to just mention. And it's seeking to control others in order to get what we want. Some people feel like they need to be in charge. And they have to make all the decisions. And they become angry when they don't get their way or when someone disagrees with them. They will manipulate and they will do whatever they can to have control of another person or of a situation. That is sinful uh, attitude and behavior. Now, every one of these sins uh, stems from the same root. And so I would like to lump them together today under the heading of the sins of rivalry. What I call the sins of rivalry. The sins of rivalry all come from the same place. We compare ourselves to one another and we view each other as competitors rather than as brothers and sisters in God's family or co-equal members of the body of Christ. Speaking here specifically about the church and our relationship to one another. But this could happen within a home or in any other relationship where we compare ourselves with one another and view ourselves as competitors rather than as equals, as brothers and sisters, as members of even the human family at times. There's, there's sinful uh, uh, ways that we relate to one another. In 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 12, the Apostle Paul speaks about people in the church who've fallen into this sinful rivalry. And he says this, We dare not class ourselves with those who commend themselves. But they, those who commend themselves, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. It is unwise for you to compare yourself with another person. It is unwise for you to measure yourself using another person as the standard. Now, our society today encourages us to do exactly this. Right? We get involved in, in just one area, but this is a big one. We get involved in social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, whatever. And we share the most interesting details of our lives. Right? What food you ate today, how your hair looked in the mirror this morning, what your kitchen looked like after the dog got into the garbage can. You know, the really important things that everyone wants to know. But we all share the things that we think will make us look good in the eyes of others. And then we scroll through our timeline and we see all the great things that other people post that make our lives look dull or messy or second rate and we become envious or jealous. Or we're motivated to try to post something that will outdo them. This, we, 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 everything becomes a competition then. We have to try to outdo everyone. This is sinful rivalry. And it produces nothing good. Not only that, but it saps the life out of you. It robs you of the joy of what God is doing in your life. And it prevents you from rejoicing with others in the blessings and the opportunities that God has given them. So this morning, I'd like for us to look at a couple of scriptures that speak to this issue. I'd also like to touch on some biblical examples 
so that we can learn not only about the dangers of these sins, but also how to deal with them. So let's pray together, and then we'll uh, examine uh, some things that Scripture says. Heavenly Father, we come to you today and realize that we all have a tendency to become envious of those that seem to have advantages over us. We become jealous of, uh, of the, the things in our life, our possessions and our, uh, and our uh, abilities and our, the attention that we get. We, we want to compete with others to make sure that we come out ahead and, and oftentimes we, we do whatever we can to control others, to make them do what we want. Lord, these, all of these areas are, are things that we often fall into, sins that we commit. I pray this morning you would help us to see areas in our own life where we have, have sinned. Show us our sin. As the psalmist wrote in Psalm 139, uh, search me, know me, try my heart, examine my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me. Lord, show us where we have sinned and then lead us in the way of life. I pray that you help us to repent of our sin and trust in you for forgiveness and for hope and healing in this area. I pray that you would glorify yourself as you use your word to show us the truth and to guide us in all truth. Well, thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll ask you as we're going here to turn to 1 Samuel 17. We're going to, we're going to look there first uh, because we want to start with an example. Uh, in 1 Samuel 17, we read about David and Goliath. Most of you probably have heard that story and are at least somewhat familiar with it. David was a teenage shepherd boy and he went out uh, to do battle against a giant who was nearly 10 feet tall. This man was a battle-hardened warrior. All of the rest of the men of Israel, many of them were, were uh, trained soldiers, but all of the rest of the men of Israel cowered in their tents, hiding. Well, this uh, Goliath uh, came out and taunted them, came out and... and uh, and confronted them and, and challenged them to a fight. David, this teenage shepherd boy, went out to battle against Goliath. And he was led by the Holy Spirit of God, and he, he walked out into the field of battle, and he struck down this Philistine warrior. And he did it with a stone and a sling, which was, by the way, not a toy slingshot. Right, a, a sling was a fairly common weapon in the ancient world and really quite effective in the hands of a skillful, trained fighter. But David was not a skillful, trained fighter. He was a shepherd who had spent time out in the fields. But he had mastered this weapon, and, and not in a human strength, but was able by the Spirit of God to, to defeat Goliath. Afterward, David decapitated Goliath. And the men of Israel were emboldened when they saw this to fight. And they routed the armies of the Philistines. It was a great victory. But in the next chapter, I I said 1 Samuel 17, but but look at chapter 18. Because there we read about what happened when the Israelites came home from battle. In verse 6, 
We read this, a very brief little statement here. Now it had happened as they were coming home, when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine, that's Goliath, that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. This was a customary thing. When the men who had been out in the battle would come home, the women would come out to meet them, and they would sing, and they would dance, and they would rejoice in the victory that had been won. But notice what it says in verse 7. It tells us the song that these women sang as they danced. Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Now this is really just a silly song. I mean, no one actually believed that David, a teenage boy who up to this point had been a shepherd watching over his father's sheep and had never been in battle a day in his life prior to this. No one believed that David killed tens of thousands of Philistines. This is a song. But for Saul, when he heard this song, this became the fuel of a spirit of rivalry. Look at verse 8. Then Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed only thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? So David, I, or so Saul eyed David from that day forward. We don't have time to trace this. If you've been following along in our regular Bible reading schedule as a church, you've already read this fairly recently. And so you've maybe begun to see the downward spiral that begins here and it continues in Saul's life. Saul becomes paranoid, emotionally disturbed, unable to sleep, murderous, obsessed with David, whom he considered a rival to the throne. And sadly, the the life of Saul illustrates the first principle of the sins of rivalry. And it is this, that they are self-destructive. The sins of rivalry are self-destructive. Jealousy, envy, competitiveness, control. These are self-destructive sins. Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 30 reads this way. A sound heart is life to the body. But envy is rottenness to the bones. A sound heart is life to the body. But envy is rottenness to the bones. To have envy, to have jealousy, a spirit of competition or control is ultimately self-destructive. What did Shakespeare say about, about jealousy? It mocks the meat it feeds on. This spirit, this green-eyed monster, it mocks the meat that it feeds on. There's a contrast here in this verse of, of, of Proverbs 14 and verse 30. There's a contrast between having a sound heart and having an envious or jealous heart. A sound heart is one which is healthy. It's wholesome. Actually, the literal meaning of the word sound there is medicinal or curative. The person who has a sound heart is a person who is restored or healed by their heart, by their spirit. 
It's not talking about the organ pumping in you. It's talking about their, their, their person, their inner man, their outlook on life, their disposition. The idea here is that a, a sound heart brings healing to the body. It brings strength to the body. But on the other hand, having an envious heart, having a competitive heart brings rottenness to your bones. It invites disease and it makes one susceptible to physical and mental illness. Now I'm not saying here, again, we have to be careful, but I'm not saying that, that every time someone is sick, it's because they have envy in their heart. That's not the point. Jesus dealt with that in the New Testament. Was the man born blind because he sinned or because his parents sinned? And the answer to Jesus says, no, neither one. Physical illness is not always caused by personal sin. But the sin of envy and jealousy in our hearts can cause physical uh, problems. That's what Psalm, what, what this, this proverb is telling us. There's a connection here. A person who has an envious heart, who has a jealous heart, a person who's competitive in heart, they bring upon themselves disaster, rottenness to their bones. It saps them of strength. Instead of their heart healing and giving them wellness, their heart, it it saps their strength. I suspect today that many who suffer from mental illness, and I I say the word many, I'm not speaking... uh, uh, and across the board here, but many who suffer from mental illness do so at least in part because they have envy or jealousy in their hearts. They're consumed with a desire either to protect their own property or what they see as their own, that's jealousy, or to obtain something that belongs to someone else, that's envy. They're consumed with that. And therefore, they don't have a healthy spirit that enables them to handle the trials of life and the inevitable ups and downs An English preacher almost 200 years ago put it this way, a sound heart is free from selfishness and rejoices in the happiness of other people. Envy, on the other hand, is wounded by our neighbor's prosperity. His ruin, or at least his injury, would give us pleasure. Think about that. Do you have envy in your heart? That you are wounded when your neighbor does well. You're wounded when your neighbor rolls in the driveway with a new car. You're wounded when you see the neighbor's house and the improvements he's been able to make on it. You're wounded when you see the achievements and accomplishments of your neighbor's kids in school. Or you're wounded because your neighbor gets a promotion at work. Really? That's envy. And, and Proverbs says this brings rottenness to the bones. This is what, uh, what Charles Bridges, this author, he says. He continues, he says, This evil is indeed the deadliest fruit of selfishness. Nothing flourishes under its shade. And listen, he calls it this. He says, This is the hell that such a man carries in his own heart. This is the problem. This is the problem with envy and jealousy and competitiveness and control. When we have this demand, guess what? It's rottenness to us. It's hell we're carrying around in our own hearts. Do you want to deprive yourself of the joy of living? Do you want to become paranoid and critical of others? Do you want to lose your ability to sleep and destroy your health? I mean, I ask those questions, but... I think all of us would say, no, no, I don't want those things. 
Allow your heart to envy others. Compare your self and your life to others. Never be satisfied with what God has given you. Never rejoice with others when good things happen to them. This is the course of treatment. You you follow this path. You follow this prescription and I tell you what's going to happen to you. You're going to become like King Saul. Pathetic, worn out, husk, empty and broken and separated from God and from others. Envy is rottenness to the bones. The sins of rivalry are self-destructive. There's another principle that's found in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 4. If you, want to, if you want to look at it. Ecclesiastes 4, 4. Solomon, the author, I believe, of Ecclesiastes also says this. Again, I saw that for all toil and every skillful work, a man is envied by his neighbor. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. I saw that for all toil and every skillful work, a man is envied by his neighbor. Solomon here is observing that a man's hard work and his craftsmanship, the skill that he demonstrates in work, what it does is it serves to to stir up envy in his neighbor's heart. Now, other, other versions translate this verse a little bit differently. Some, some of them do. For an example of that is the, the English Standard Version. It says this, Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. In other words, it's only envy of your neighbor that motivates men to work hard and do good work because they want to outdo the person next to them. But really, whichever way this is translated or whichever way this verse means and and the reason it's translated different ways is that there's just some dispute about the precise uh, usage here of a couple of the words but either way whether working hard and doing good work produces envy in your neighbor because they look at what you do and they envious of you or whether we're all just motivated by the desire to keep up with the joneses In either case, Solomon's assessment of the situation is identical. What does he say? This also is vanity. Emptiness. Good friend from a number of years ago was preaching a a series of messages on Ecclesiastes and he, he substituted the word soap bubbles for the word vanity. Soap bubbles, soap bubbles, all is soap bubbles. You ever try and catch soap bubbles? The kids love to do that. Our dog used to do that. He'd blow bubbles and she'd run all over the yard jumping trying to catch them. If she ever caught them, they'd just disappear. The minute you touch them, they're gone. That's the idea. It's vanity. It's empty. It's worthless. It's something that disappears. It's fleeting. It's here for a moment and then it's gone. Solomon says, this is vanity and get this, grasping for the wind. Let me put it in a different different language for you. The sins of rivalry are self-defeating. The sins of rivalry are self-defeating. It's, it's grasping for the wind. It's trying to take hold of something that cannot possibly be held. <clears throat> we have a little, again, a modern, more modern um, that David wouldn't have appreciated and Solomon wouldn't have appreciated, like trying to nail jello to the wall. Good luck with that. 
It's not possible. Try to take hold of something that cannot possibly be held. No matter how hard you try, you'll never live up. And this is, let let me start over and say this again because you need to hear this. No matter how hard you try, you will never live up to the way you imagine other people live. No matter how hard you try, you'll never live up to the way you imagine other people live. I say it that way because in truth, other people live just like you do most of the time. They don't really have it any better than you do. From the outside, it looks that way, but oftentimes the truth is far from it. But, some, but listen, think about this. Somebody's always going to have a bigger or nicer house. doesn't matter how big or how nice or how good. It, somebody's going to have a bigger one, a better one, a nicer one, a newer one. Somebody's always going to have a more comfortable or more expensive car. Someone's always going to have better clothes. Someone's always going to have more musical or athletic talent. Someone's always going to have a higher IQ or whatever it is that you're craving. Someone is always going to outdo you. And if you spend your life pursuing being the best in whatever category you want to be, that is an endless pursuit. You are grasping for the wind. If you spend your whole life being dissatisfied with who you are and with what you have, if you pursue rivalry with others, you will die having wasted your life trying to catch the wind. It can't be done. A really sad example of this is found in the book of Genesis. I don't have to turn there. It's a lengthy passage and I'm not going to read it. Two sisters, Rachel and Leah, Anybody heard of Rachel and Leah before? Familiar with their story at all? These two sisters were given in marriage to the same man. His name was Jacob. The situation was dysfunctional from the very beginning. Rachel was beautiful. Unfortunately, Leah was not. In the middle of Genesis 29 and verse 30, right in the middle of the verse, we read this line, and it's almost a throwaway line. It just says, and he, that's Jacob, also loved Rachel more than Leah. This fueled a rivalry between the two sisters. The Lord opened Leah's womb, and she was able to conceive. And while Leah began to conceive children and bear children, Rachel was childless. Leah had a son. Firstborn son. And here's what she said after she had her firstborn son. And I'm quoting from Genesis 29 here. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. Think about that. She had a son, and her thought is, now. I gave him a son. Maybe now, finally, he's going to love me. She had a second son. Then she had a third son. And after she had her third son, she named him Levi, by the way, which means attached. And here's what she said after her third son. Now, this time, my husband will become attached to me. She had a fourth son. After her fourth son was born, in Genesis chapter 30 and verse 1, we read about how Rachel felt. That's what it says. Now when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. Rachel's envy 
was so great. She concocted a plan. She thought, you know, I can't have children, but I've got a way that I can outdo my sister or at least keep up with her. And so her plan was she was going to give her husband, her servant, Bilhah. And, and Bilhah was going to become Jacob's third wife. But whatever children, because she was Rachel's servant, whatever children Bilhah bore would, be, would belong to Rachel. They would be hers, at least in her mind. And so he took Bilhah as his third wife, and he bore several children to her. As these children were born, in the 8th verse of, of Genesis 30, we hear some of the bitterness in Rachel's heart. Here's what she says as, as Bilhah, her servant, begins to bear children for Jacob. Rachel says this, With great wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister, and indeed I have prevailed. I'm sure this is a loving home. Sounds like it, doesn't it? Place you'd want to be? Leah, at that point in time, stopped conceiving and bearing children, and so she realized, I've got a problem, my sister's catching up, can't have that. So Leah responded by thinking, well, if it was good enough for Rachel, it's good enough for me. So she gave her servant to be Jacob's fourth wife, and she bore him several children. Now, this is all going on, and there was an incident that we read about there in Genesis 30 that that Leah's son, her oldest son, found some mandrakes in a field one day, brought the mandrakes in, and Rachel saw them, and she wanted some of them. And so she asked for them, and Leah said, well, it's not fair. Jacob loves you. He doesn't even love me. Rachel says, well, I tell you what. I'll make a deal with you. You give me the mandrakes, and you can have Jacob in your bed tonight. Well, this was the deal they come up with. And so Leah meets Jacob as he's coming in from the field that night, and she says to him, quote, You must come in to me, for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. Wow. That's romantic. What a disaster. What a terrible, dysfunctional home. Leah gets pregnant. She has a fifth son. Then she has a sixth son. And after she has six sons that she's born to Jacob, here's what Leah says. Now my husband will dwell with me. Because I've born him six sons. Wow. What a mess. But you understand that both of these women envious of each other, were pursuing something that neither one of them could ever get. They were chasing after the wind. Why? Because what they wanted was impossible. There was no way that Jacob could satisfy either one of their envious, controlling hearts because what they wanted was to be the sole object of his attention. And his affection. Now, just as a timeout and a pause for a second, I would argue that when a woman gets married to a man, she has a right to expect to be the sole object of his affection. Doesn't she? Do we agree on that? Everybody with me on that? Yes, right? That's a like I said, this was dysfunctional from the beginning. This never should have happened this way. 
God was still at work, but it never should have happened this way. This whole scenario, by, and again, I'm not trying to minimize Jacob's role. I haven't talked about that. But this really was Jacob's fault and his father-in-law's fault. So we don't have, to go, we don't have time to go into the whole story. But the sisters sinned here as well. And, I, and we, we can't let anybody off the hook. They demonstrate that spirit of envy that produces a, a rabid competitiveness. And then it, it turns into a desire to control others. But the whole thing is self-defeating. They're trying to grasp the wind. It couldn't be done. How many years did they waste on this petty rivalry? How much harm did it do to their family? How many years? I mean, just think about this. I, you know, in a modern context, we'd say, well, I'm sure all their kids end up in therapy or something. You know, trying to deal with all their mommy and daddy issues because, boy, what a mess. Of course, if you look at their kids and you look at the record of how their kids turned out, there was a mess. There was a lot of mess that happened in their family. And I would, I would submit that at least some of it was caused by this dysfunction, this envy and rivalry that took place in the home. That instead of being a home, this was a place of battle. And that's not how it should be. So if you want to waste your life If you want to spend your whole life chasing after the wind and trying to take hold of the wind, then just let me tell you, here's how you do it. You live with a heart that sees every other person as a rival. You live that way, and you'll spend your whole life chasing after the wind. Now, please, I think you understand, I'm not encouraging you to do that. I'm not encouraging because the sins of rivalry are self-destructive and they are self-defeating. But there is a biblical answer, a response. Turn with me to Proverbs, back to the book of Proverbs, chapter 23. Proverbs 23 gives us, I believe, a biblical response of how we can deal with these sins of rivalry, envy, jealousy, competitiveness, and control. We see them in our hearts. We see the tendencies there. We know that we have an inclination to, 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 these, to these sins. So you know what? How are we going to deal with them? Proverbs 23. Solomon tells us this. I sum it up in this way. The sins of rivalry are overcome by looking up and looking ahead. Right? The sins of rivalry are overcome by looking up and looking ahead. Look at what Solomon says. Proverbs 23 Uh, Verse 17 and verse 18, and then we'll unpack what this means. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but be zealous for the fear of the Lord all the day. For surely there is a hereafter, and your hope will not be cut off. Do not let your heart envy sinners. Now Solomon's concern here is that we might envy the wicked. So he's focusing specifically on that, although I would say this, these principles apply more broadly to that than that. Why would we envy the wicked? Well, sometimes because they seem to live a charmed life. Seems like their wickedness pays off. Seems like they're ba- breaking the rules and bending the rules and doing wrong helps them get ahead in life. And so we might envy them getting ahead. But also, sometimes their sin just looks fun from where we sit. Looks like they're having a good time. And we might be tempted to envy that. And Solomon says, do not envy them. Do not envy them. Two two responses. The first one is look up. 
Look up as found there in verse 17. Be zealous for the fear of Yahweh all the day. Now in the book of Proverbs, this expression, the fear of Yahweh or fear of the Lord, is used numerous times. It serves as kind of a theme verse for the book. It really, it, it, we see it in the very first verses of the book, in the very last verses of the book, and throughout the book numerous times. And, and unfortunately, this expression, the fear of Yahweh or fear of the Lord, is often misunderstood. Uh, for, for example, in his book, God's Wisdom in Proverbs, Pastor Dan Phillips spends 40 pages discussing the meaning and significance of this one phrase. The fear of the Lord, what it means. And so there's a great deal that we can unpack. <laughs> we don't have time for that this morning. So let me give you Pastor Phillips' definition, his summary definition of the fear of Yahweh. Here's what he says. To fear Yahweh in practical terms involves turning around in humbled conviction of our sins, taking the word of God to heart, and submitting ourselves to Him as Lord and Savior. When we talk about, when we talk about uh, you know, believing on Jesus, trusting in Jesus, becoming a Christian, we could use this, this expression as a synonym, fear the Lord. Because that's what it means. That's what Solomon means. So I could put it this way. If before you can deal with envy and jealousy in your heart, you have to humbly admit that you're a sinner. That your sins have separated you from God. You have to believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, like the Bible says, that He rose again to be your Lord and your Savior. If you've turned to Christ in faith, if you believed on Christ, then you've begun to fear Yahweh. That's by definition here. And what, the, what, what, what Solomon is saying is the ongoing pursuit of that relationship. Right? The ongoing pursuit of the fear of Yahweh. Be zealous, he says. Be zealous for the fear of Yahweh all the day. This should be your preoccupation in life. Look up. Turn your attention to Him. Start focusing on the Lord. Preoccupy yourself with fearing God, with fearing the Lord, with trusting in Him and, and, and submitting to Him as your Lord and your Savior. That's the first part of the solution here. We have to do this. So you, it obviously begins when we, when we trust in Christ. But then that continues. This is something that we do as a continuing thing. As Christians, it's an ongoing thing. The fear of Yahweh is the antidote for envy and jealousy. It's something we need to continue to pursue on a daily basis. The fear of the Lord. Trusting in Him. Submitting to Him. Following Him in obedience. That's, that's again, what you want to deal with envy in your heart. The first place to do it is just, you need to start living for the Lord. You need to start following Him. You need to start focusing your attention on Him and making your life about Him. But there's another aspect here of our thinking that needs to be corrected, and and that's in verse 18, and I said this is look ahead. So we look up, that is we turn our attention to the Lord, and then we look ahead. Notice what he says in verse 18. Surely there is a hereafter. Did you know that? Did you know that when... That when this life ends, there is something that comes after this life? 
I know a lot of people believe that there is something that comes after this life, but they don't really think a whole lot about it. And the ideas that they have about the hereafter are mostly made up of what I would call warm feelings, good wishes. We like to think that everybody in the hereafter is happy and at peace and at rest. We like to think that, but that's all, that's all coming from us. That's all what we imagine. None of us can say that with, from our own experience, having gone there to visit the hereafter and come back to tell about it. By the way, a couple weeks ago we talked about that in John 3. Jesus said that doesn't happen. Nobody goes to heaven and comes back to tell about it. Jesus did. But he's the one. Now, uh, so listen, we, we think the hereafter is a place of peace. It's a place of rest and comfort. I mean, not for really bad people, like axe murderers and stuff, but for people like you and me and every other good person we know, yeah, the hereafter, it's, it's good. It's peace, it's comfort, it's rest. It's not too hot, not too cold, just right. Some of you are really going, I wish it was like that. But the hereafter that Solomon is speaking of here can't be peace and rest for everyone. It can't be. How do I know that? Because if it was, how would that help us avoid envy of sinners? Why does he say don't envy sinners because there's hereafter? He's saying this, don't envy sinners because there's going to be a hereafter. And guess what? For sinners, those who don't fear Yahweh, the hereafter is not going to be good. The hereafter is not peace and rest and comfort for those who don't fear Yahweh. You don't want to end up like them. You see, envy leads to destruction, not just in this life, but in the life to come, in the hereafter. But he's saying, listen, that's why you don't envy them, because you know where they're headed. Because you can look ahead and you can see where they're headed. It's not good. But those who fear Yahweh, what does he say about them? He says, your hope will not be cut off. Guess what? Your hope, your expectation will be fulfilled if you trust in the Lord. Fear the Lord. Serve Him with all your heart. Don't worry about what other people have or how you look in comparison to them. Know that there is a day coming when the wicked will be judged and those who trust in Jesus Christ will be rewarded in glory. The reason that we have envy, the reason that we have jealousy and competitiveness and, and, and attempt to control others is that we're not looking up. We're not focusing on the Lord and, and fearing Him, making that the primary goal. And we're not looking ahead. We're forgetting that there is going to come a day when our reward will be certain. That means I may not get ahead in this life. That means I may always be second best in this life. That's okay. If I'm not living for this life, that's perfectly fine. If I'm living for the hereafter, that's what Solomon says we need to do. Our preoccupation should be in fearing the Lord 
and looking ahead for the reward in glory. Now, one quick example from Scripture, and then we'll be done. Back in 1 Samuel, we noticed that Saul responded to David's rise in Israel by becoming jealous, by, by seeking to kill David. We didn't go through all the details of this date, but Saul considered David a rival. He tried to kill him on numerous occasions. He became obsessed with him. Now, there was one sense in which David was a rival to Saul. God had told Samuel, the prophet, to go and anoint David to be the next king. And Saul knew that. And yet, David wasn't looking to steal the throne from Saul. In fact, he had opportunity to do that, and he didn't take advantage of it. He could have killed Saul and taken the throne by force, but he didn't. He refused. He was waiting patiently to allow God to work out the circumstances to let to, that he should become king. But... But here's the thing. In all of this situation, there's another key figure in this scenario. Saul, when he knew of David, as David, David was rising in Israel, Saul became jealous. But Saul's son, Jonathan, responded to the same situation in a very different way. Jonathan, of course, would have been heir to the throne. He was the next in line after Saul. When Samuel anointed David to be king, it meant Jonathan, in spite of being the crown prince, would not be king. Now, in that situation, we might expect Jonathan to consider David a rival because he was a rival. But that's not how Jonathan responded at all. He didn't view David as a competitor. It's amazing. In 1 Samuel 23, Jonathan met David while David was hiding out in a wilderness stronghold. And here's what Jonathan said to David, 1 Samuel 23. Do not fear, for the hand of my father, Saul, shall not find you. Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel. Listen, Jonathan is telling David this. Jonathan, who's the crown prince, who he's supposed to be the next king. Jonathan says to David, you will be the next king over Israel. And look at, listen to what he says, the very next phrase. And I shall be next to you. Jonathan wasn't threatened by David's success. He didn't become envious or jealous. In fact, he embraced David's success as God's will. He saw God elevating David and he said, Wow, God's doing something great. I want to be a part of that. Instead of being jealous, he positioned himself to be David's right-hand man. Now that's not how things ended up working out. But Jonathan, that wasn't Jonathan's fault. Jonathan said, David, I'm loyal to you. And if we had time to go through 1 Samuel 20 to 23, we could unpack how Jonathan over and over again expressed, listen, my focus is on God. He's the one who's in control. That's what Jonathan kept saying over and over again. I'm going to let God watch between us. I'm going to let God be the one who decides. He was looking up. And he was looking ahead to God's plan being worked out. He was not interested in himself. And what a contrast between Jonathan and his father Saul. 
Instead of spiraling downward into paranoia and mental anguish, Jonathan remained strong and purposeful until the very day of his death. He was looking up, trusting the Lord. And he was looking ahead, confident that God's promises would come true. This is the remedy for sinful rivalry. Will you make use of it today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we see this example, I think, of Saul, who's who's really such a pathetic character. man who started out with such great potential, but because of his own sin, part of that being the, the envy and the jealousy that he had in his heart toward David, it caused him to become a desperate, foolish man, empty, distraught, someone who, at the end of his life, was consulting witches, looking for some direction because he had cut himself off from you. And then we have Jonathan. Rather than becoming envious of David, rather than becoming jealous for his claim to the throne, Jonathan, he aligned himself with David. He trusted in you. He said he was, he was confident that, that your will was best. Oh, I pray today you'd help us to be like Jonathan. And instead of, of, of becoming envious of others or jealous of the, the things that we have, instead that we would rejoice in what you're doing in their lives and rejoice when you bless others and, and rejoice that you are working and that we get to be a part of that. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to see the foolishness of, of, of envy and jealousy. And instead, help us to learn to trust you. To fear you with our lives. To live for you and to look ahead to the future that you've promised. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who's never trusted in Christ. Who's never begun to fear the Lord. Who's, who's living their life on their own and, and, and in their own spirit. That today they would realize they have no protection. They're going to waste their life chasing after the wind. They have nothing, nothing of substance to live for because they're pursuing emptiness, vanity. I pray they would repent and they would trust in Christ. Fear the Lord. Guide us and help us to respond properly to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.